Hello and welcome to That Was Football, a football nostalgia podcast looking back at times where football truly was a beautiful game. I'm your host, Andy Ross, and joining me as ever is Greg McDonald. He'll provide the insight, the wisdom, and all the bits that are factually correct along the way. How's it going, mate? Aye, not bad, mate. Aye, a bit nervous about some of my pronunciation incoming, but we'll see. <laughs> well, I've already given you the big build-up there. That, I know. Uh, I'm expecting everything to be absolutely spot on. Tonight's topic is Paris Saint-Germain, prior to the Qatarian ownership. Greg, let's give the listeners a wee bit of background to what we're going to discuss tonight and where our focus is going to be over the course of this episode. Aye, no problem. Um, So what I kind of mainly wanted to cover was, it's known as, before they got taken over by Qatar, it's kind of known as PSG's golden era. So this was like in the 90s, mainly between like 91 and 98, uh, when they had quite a they had a quite a bit of European success, one European trophy, but a lot of um, they, you know, they they went quite far in a lot of European tournaments in this period, and they had some, you know, them they had a lot of domestic success compared to the past as well. So yeah, we're not going way back here. This isn't like you know when people talk about uh, Man City in the sixties or seventies. We're not. We're only going back about twenty years here. So um, I think a lot of people, when let's say people are twenty five or under, they may just think of. PSG is, you know, Qatar onwards, you know, 2011 onwards, but there was, you know, there was a kind of a decent period for the club here. And there was a, a significant moment in 1991. I know you said it was only 20 years or so, but we're going back 31 years. Uh, so most of our <laughs> lifetime, they've obviously had the backing of Canal Plus, which is the, the French television station. They were able to wipe out the club's debt and they also invested quite heavily in the, the transfer market. So we'll start at the 91-92 season. Arthur George comes in as manager. He was formerly at Porto. And they made several signings as well, uh, the likes of Ricardo, Valdo, uh, and, and Paul Le Guin as well. That took them to a third-place finish. Was that somewhat underwhelming, given the, the fact that there was this excitement and financial power in place at Paris Saint-Germain? You probably could argue that, aye. Because... Um, I suppose it's important to consider what a force Marseille were at this time, but um, when Canal Plus took over, their kind of priority was to get European football and to win the league within three years' time. And um, so by this kind of, by this uh, metric, it's, it's, it's a pretty solid beginning, but, um, you know, not spectacular yet. But yeah, as you say, they hired Arthur Georges, um, who he'd won a Champions League, I believe, well, sorry, a European Cup with Porto beforehand. And Baldo and uh, Ricardo were both kind of pillars for the team for a couple, for quite a few seasons. I think um, Ricardo, it was he went on to manage the team a few years later. So two really like kind of solid signings. It made me think a wee bit of like uh, you know when Chelsea signed Mourinho, like he he just won a Champions League with Porto, and he he brought a couple of kind of stalwarts with him, like uh, Carvalho and um, what was his name, Paulo Ferreira, the right back. Yeah. yeah. I know those two were Benfica players, but they were still um, kind of solid additions. But yeah, if, if we were to go on to the 92-93 season, so yeah, this season, as you say, they finished third, but if we go on to 92-93, it gets a wee bit more exciting. Yeah, it certainly did in two blockbuster signings in the form of George Weah and David Gernola. They don't need much of an introduction, really, do they? And given their, their stature in the game at that point in time, that's absolutely huge for a club like PSG, who were really on a upward trajectory at that point in time. Yeah, because now at this point, PSG were pretty much, if not one of, like, uh, if not the one of the richest clubs in France. So, you know, both of, both of these guys were, you know, domestic signings. George Weah was signed for Monaco. Ginola, I can't remember now who they signed. Uh, Brest, I think it was they signed Ginola from. You know, these two, these two were like fantastic signings, really. Um, I don't know who we want to start with. I mean, what to say George Weir, King George Weir. <laughs> He's like one of my George Weir's like one of my favourite players of all time, I think. Um 25th president of Liberia, George Weir. Um and that, so one of the seasons one of the seasons with PSG, he was he was named the FIFA player of the year and the Ballon d'Or winner. I think I believe he's still the only African player to do that. You know, I mean, you know, you could definitely argue Eto Drogba Salah have deserved it, uh, you know, in the in the last few years, but uh, 
George Weah, he, he's he's the one. He's the one that's done it. He's probably best known for his time at Milan after PSG. Um, maybe that that goal against Verona where he runs the whole pitch. I still remember. I, I've I've got a, like a kind of faint memory of seeing that live on telly. Um, and he had those like red Diadora boots as well. But um, he's Weah's one of the guys that really kind of. Um, I mean, TRA on real say he's one of the guys that kind of broke the mold of what a striker could be. Then, you know, if you go to like the early and mid 90s, strikers were really still just goal poachers. But where I had that kind of athleticism and uh, dribbling ability that, you know, typical strikers lacked at the time. And um, he's, he's not a player that scored kind of crazy numbers. I mean, a lot of people like, you know, football, Twitter or whatever you see nowadays, they're very obsessed with stats and like goals. And, you know, George, Weah, he never got over like like 25 goals in a season. But it's, you know, it's just the, it's, it's the kind of stuff that you don't see on the stat sheet that Weah was so good at. And obviously playing for Liberia, he never got to a World Cup or anything. He never really got to make an impact there. But he was, yeah, he was definitely one of the top players in the world at this time. And yeah. Uh, yeah, David Ginola. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about him? He's, you know, fondly remembered here, isn't he? Like men and women <laughs> in Britain. Yeah, certainly. And the, the thing is, I, I would say both of us coming at it from our mid-30s, I've also had a soft spot for, for Tottenham. Uh, the fact that Ginola played more games for Tottenham than he did Newcastle, but I think he's possibly better remembered for his time at, at Newcastle yeah. just because it was a a really exciting period of of Newcastle's history, really, uh, under Kevin Keegan. They came so close to, to winning the title. The, the signing of, of the likes of Alan Shearer around that time as well. It, it was just a really positive time. And, of course, they're hoping to, to recapture those times uh, at mm-hmm. this present moment. But, really, it's never been as good as it was for Newcastle over that, that spell of three or four seasons when the likes of, of Ginola were in place at St James's Park. We've already touched on, in the first episode, Marseille's winning the first ever Champions League. They also won the league in 1992-93, though the contentious circumstances of that <laughs> have already been brought up. They would be stripped of the title, uh, PSG finished second, but they didn't claim the title either, so it was a, a null and void season. In terms of European football, UEFA Cup, PSG knockout Real Madrid, they go into the semi-finals where they meet a Roberto Baggio-inspired Juventus side. They fall at the second last hurdle. Disappointment there, but uh, when you actually look back in the highlights, Baggio over those two legs, my word, he was magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. This was like this is this is considered like because of all the Baggio's injuries, he only had a couple of years at like the real, real top. And this was definitely 92, 93, 94. He was definitely that. He was the guy. I mean, like I said, George Weah was one of the best, but I think Baggio was the best at this time. And yeah, he scores all three goals, doesn't he? Uh, home and away against PSG. They lose 2 1 at home and then 1 0 away. Weah gets the goal for PSG, but that, um, that UEFA Cup, uh, that that game against Real in the previous leg is that's that's something because they they lose three one at the Bernabeu, and then at the Parc de France they go three 0 up, and then um, Zamorano, Bam Bam Zamorano, Zamorano he scores he scores in the ninety fourth minute to make it three one, which would take it to uh, extra time, but then two minutes later um, Antoine Cumbery for PSG he gives them the fourth in the ninety sixth minute, so that's you know that's quite something that. Um, that tie. It's a shame just to go to all that effort to knock out Real Madrid. You've got Juve and the it just shows what done to the strength of the UEFA Cup at that time, like these real top teams. That was something that, that instantly sprung to my mind there. Uh, and also the prestige of the tournament at that mm-hmm. point in time as well. And don't get me wrong, I think when sides get to the latter stages, it's certainly considered as important and they put a lot of their energy and resource into winning it, but even some of the most recent winners, you would maybe say are a wee bit kind of surprising or or maybe even a wee bit underwhelming. I certainly don't think that there's much kind of glamour attached to the yeah to the early stages of the competition. I think when it when it does heat up and maybe that's due to the fact that the the Champions League sides that finished third in the group stage, 
they automatically drop into the Europa League as well. So it's kind of seen as a as a secondary competition. Whereas at that time, I think all three European competitions were mm-hmm. were really kind of sought after. Aye, because we kind of touched on it in our last episode. You, you get those kind of teams that you just think of as like Europa League teams, you know, <laughs> your Sevillas and Shakhtars, like very, very good teams. But um, they just seem to be just about that level, just below the top level. But aye, at this time, because you only got champions that they entered the Champions League, you had like really, really top teams in the Cup Winners' Cup and in the UEFA Cup. I mean, imagine... I'd be like if we still if we still had cup winners cups going now nowadays and there was only you know the champions that got in the Champions League, you'd be getting finals like Barca Juventus or Real Madrid Liverpool all the time, uh, and that'd be the cup winners cup. But um, now all those teams are just always in the Champions League, and it's uh, yeah. We like I said, we talked about it before, but it is a bit less fun this way, less variety, and you know finalists and winners and things like that. Yeah, and it's almost kind of hard to imagine. The likes of uh, PSG or, or Real Madrid, even I suppose we saw it last season, didn't we, with Barcelona? Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to really find that that impetus or a desire to to progress in the the Europa League, and they were albeit by the eventual winners, Frankfurt, but they were really mm-hmm. soundly beaten. Yeah, I mean, because you get it, and I mean, when teams like. Man United, Juve dropped down to the Europa League. They don't really. I'm, I'm talking shy actually. I'm, I'm Man United won it a couple of years ago, but oh, generally, yeah, I suppose you have had Man United and Chelsea winning it, haven't you? Yeah, uh, have Chelsea won it a couple of times? Uh, really, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be asking you that question. I should just be telling you. But yeah, they have won it a couple of times uh, in recent last decade. But you do still get quite a few teams that drop down, you know, like the kind of top level teams, seen as the top level teams that drop down to the Europa League and they fall, you know, maybe not like, not, not the first hurdle, but they'll, you know, they'll drop off in like the quarters and semis quite a lot. Yeah, I'm totally agreed. And albeit the, the circumstance of that Real Madrid quarterfinal victory was extraordinary. I, I think that, and it's, it's on the back of a, a brilliant article in this month's 442 magazine as well on Baggio and, Nice. Just the circumstances, even joining Juventus from Fiorentina, it's, it's absolutely not even up for debate. It's definitely going to be a... Better Baggio will be a topic on this oh, podcast. Uh, it might take two episodes, to be perfectly honest, but it's a, <laughs> it's a tremendous bit of writing and it's got so many well-respected individuals commenting on him. And it's just... I think he's, he's one of these players that very rarely will be shown in a bad light. It's, it's mm-hmm. so unfortunate that there's one moment in his career, and I'm almost spoiling this episode, Anna, but the, there's, there's <laughs> one moment in his career that he, he perhaps will always be remembered by, which is so unfortunate when you consider how many spectacular moments he had uh, throughout his playing career. And and obviously, the lack of, of real success, and I, I mean that in a sense of a player that could rightfully claim to have been the the best in the game for a number of years. His medal haul didn't really match that, did it? No, I mean, there's you don't need to do any convincing me to do an episode about Roberto Baggio, <laughs> trust me. Uh, and like, yeah, the annoying, th- I remember the annoying thing was, I don't know if it was one of the things I just heard on the playground, but I always remember like thinking Arrigo Saki blamed um, Baggio for that because Arrigo Saki was the 94 Italy manager at the time. He blamed Baggio for <laughs> missing the penalty, you know, which any player could do. And Baggio was injured as well, wasn't he? He had a hamstring injury during that during that final, and he pretty much he carried him off. on his back. He <laughs> took him off uh, in the second group game. Yeah, well, that's right. I want to say Italy lost uh, to the Republic of Ireland. And the winning goal. Yeah, uh, and then. Did the goalkeeper sent off early on in the second game? Could have done. I uh, could have done. Can't and remember. Baggio was the player that was sacrificed following the sending off. But they went on to win that game. And then I think they drew their last game against Nigeria. Or it might be the other way around. Again, this is why you're the one in charge of the facts. And I just <laughs> bleat on. But, well, let's fire forward. We'll go to 93-94. We've talked about the previous season and all the ridiculousness that came with that. No title winner, uh, but improved performance in, in European competitions. They made a, another benchmark piece of business when they signed Rai, a player mm. that 
you've put in the notes and you only need to do very little digging, to be honest, to say that you say perhaps the greatest ever player. I think amongst the fan base, is considered the greatest. Yeah, definitely. Um, Rise, Rise, one of the players you don't really hear a lot about nowadays. You know, I never, I, I can't believe I never knew he was the brother of Socrates, like the like the more famous Brazilian footballer. I can't believe I never knew he was his brother. Um, but like as as you say, he was he's you know the biggest PSG legend there is. Consider really impressed considering he was only there for a few years. He's um, he was actually before PSG. He was a bit of a Sao Paulo legend as well because uh, you know he was there. He was there for a long time. I think he went back, went back there after PSG. But um, he was quite instrumental in um, Sao Paulo beating Barca in the '92. I think I think they called it the Intercontinental Continental uh, Cup back then. Um, but it was interesting though because he was like you know he made a big name from Brazil. Very talented player. PSG signed him when he was 28. You know, like, think about that nowadays. Um, nowadays, I mean, Real Real Madrid signed Vinicius when he was 18, and it was like 10 days after his Flamengo debut or something like that, and he was about 50 million. Now, like, I, I, I quite like that idea of, you know, Brazilian players staying in Brazil for a longer time. It, it makes it feel a bit more kind of mysterious, <laughs> you know, to me. Like, I remember when, like, Neymar was coming through and that as well. It was like, when you we already knew, like, everything about him when, when Barca were signing him from Santos. So I like I like that kind of air of mysticism about it really, uh, but yeah, if you just if you watch any clips on on Rai on YouTube, he was just a very kind of very uh, elegant attacking midfielder. It reminds me quite a lot of Totti actually. He didn't get the goals that Totti does, but full of um, full of like chips and back heels and that is his YouTube combinations are about. I've never seen a keeper like have, I've never seen a player have like do so many keepy ups at like a professional level either. It's just like non-stop keepy ups. Um, and he's the kind of player that I think is a bit of a dying breed nowadays. Just that you know I'll quite often nowadays like the Trek Artista number ten that kind of thing thought of as a luxury. Nowadays I think if he played he'd probably he'd be made be turned into an eight, you know, like De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva or something like that. One thing I kind of like, you know, I hazily remember about Rai, we're going, we're going back again to the 94 World Cup. <laughs> we'll do an episode about that as well, I'm sure. But I remember that. So that 94 World Cup, he was, you know, he was in the, he was the starter for the first couple of games, but then he got replaced uh, by Mazzino, who was a much more kind of, uh, you know, just dogged defensive midfielder. And that was very much, um, that's very much a reflection on Brazil, that Brazil team, and Carlos Alberto Pereira, the manager. He was he was quite kind of pragmatic, and you know Dunga was the captain. They weren't they weren't really the most popular uh, Brazil team to have won the World Cup, but um, Rai, for some reason, I always thought Rai was related to Kaka as well because. Any interview I ever saw with Kaka, he'd talk about Rai. I mean, Kaka is like one of my favorite players as well. Just, just listing off my favorite players just now. But yeah, <laughs> Rai, Rai was a massive influence on Kaka. His like play, playing style as well. Um, but yeah, let's. I we can talk a bit about the the season itself here uh, with another interesting European run. Yeah, certainly. And we'll start by discussing the league first of all. And they would win the, the title by eight points from Marseille, who subsequently were relegated. At the end of that season, uh, to Division Two, and that was on the back of their misdemeanors in the previous campaign. So, plenty to talk about in terms of the <laughs> controversies of, of French football, which seems to be a, a common thread of these first couple of podcasts that we've done. I was looking at the stats from that season as well, and the three top goal scorers in the league all scored twenty goals. Yuri Jorkaev, who was at Monaco. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas Odek and then the third one Roger Bolly. no way Roger Bolly. I didn't know that <laughs> yeah you Roger, Roger Bolly was at Lens at the time oh man he scored 20 goals that season he would later go to Le Havre then sign for Walsall where he scored 12 goals in 41 games <laughs> and then his career Fizzled out with three appearances at Dundee United and seven appearances at at Bournemouth. So um, yeah, um, quite spectacular. 
Aye, so full, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a Dundee United fan. <laughs> if anyone's uh, listening, doesn't know this, but um, I, I actually went to, um, I went to his first game, Roger Bolly. I thought he was, I was so excited about signing him, basically just because he was Basil Bolly's brother <laughs> and Basil Bolly scored in the Champions League final. I thought, oh man, he's going to be fucking class. <laughs> but um, so it was, uh, we played Kilmarnock at Rugby Park. Uh, Kelly won two 0 I think it was. But Roger Bolly got to score two goals that were called off for offside. Uh, I've never actually seen kind of video replays on them. They looked, he looked onside from where I was in real life. But yeah, I've still got PTSD from that day. <laughs> he was, he was, there was, um, he was finished. Twenty-five years on. Ah, <laughs> uh, sore. That was a sore one. But aye, uh, that's that's cool, man. I didn't, I didn't know that he was, um, uh, he was in the scorer charts. Yeah, so certainly was. It's taught, but. Sort of faded out after that. Um, I think the Walls Hall move was the beginning of the end, and then uh, when you end up at Tannadice, you're really, really struggling. But uh, it's oblivion. <laughs> the the European run this time it was a Cup Winners Cup. They again defeat Real Madrid, and then come up against Arsenal in the semi final. Yeah, I mean, um, so they beat Real. Uh, they beat them 1-0 in Madrid, and it was one each in Paris, so they got got by them again. Uh, with Arsenal, so they drew one each in Paris, and they lost 1-0 in London. Well, it was kind of the big moment, well, not moment from this, but the big story about this one was that Arthur George had left George Weah in the stands. Uh, so George Weah couldn't, was powerless, you know, the best one of the best players in Europe, he was powerless to help them here. And this, this defeat actually marked the end of Arthur George, because he was kind of known for his conservative style of play. And I don't think the fans were too happy with him anyway. So I guess they thought of this as kind of the final straw. Uh, you're not leaving George Way on the bench in the European semi-final and getting away with it. So he was replaced by uh, Luis Fernandez. After that, I think I believe he was a former PSG player, Fernandez. So and, and he went on. To, he went on to good success uh, the next the next few years. Yeah, he certainly did. And his his managerial career was was certainly. Quite long as well, wasn't it? Like he had two mm-hmm. two separate spells at PSG. He managed Espanyol. He managed Israel, uh, Real Betis, the Israeli national team, the the Guinea national team as well. So he certainly he certainly got about. Yeah, definitely. So Louis Fernandez is in. He's replaced Arthur George arriving from Cannes. The ninety four ninety five season, PSG of course going as champions. But unfortunately, they're not able to to build in the momentum domestically. They they finished third in the table. That said, they do manage a cup double. Mm-hmm. It was the Champions League though where they really ignited, and there's some brilliant matches across that ninety four ninety five Champions League campaign from a PSG point of view. Yeah, definitely, and as it kind of speaks to what we we're talking about before, with the standard of the teams in the UEFA Cup, you know, this is this is PSG's kind of first go at the Champions League, and they get to the semi-finals, which just kind of shows you the strength of the teams here. So they beat Barcelona, uh, they beat them uh, in Paris, they beat them one 0 and they draw one each in Spain. They lose to Milan, uh, so I know defeat to Italian opposition again. Um, there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't as many big signs this season, but they'd still, you know, kept the team together. They did do the double over Bayern in the group stages. There was a there's a really good uh, George Weah goal. One of his kind of maybe his kind of most famous goal for PSG. Bayern like couldn't really handle them. Uh, I actually found there was like a video on YouTube of um, this, uh, you know, a kind of re- review of this season. I think it was called uh, Euro PSG. It's like obviously like just a kind of VHS copy. It's all in French, so there's no <laughs> only so much I could understand. But uh, yeah, I saw some nice goals. Uh, but yeah, then uh, uh, then I guess we're going to 95, 96, don't we? We do, yeah. And there's a massive turnover of mm-hmm. players across that season in the league. PSG finished runners up, but the European glory comes, and that's of course the the main two talking points. Firstly, the new arrivals within the squad. And then claiming Cup Winners' Cup glory. Because I think that while the rejuvenation and the money that was invested brought domestic success, albeit to this point only one league title since the Canal Plus takeover and wiping of the debt. But as it was, or as it is now rather, European triumphs and European silverware just speaks more volumes than a a worldwide sense, doesn't it? It really yeah. 
and brings the club to that upper echelon, which I'm sure they were when when the, the takeover first took place. That was obviously the the end goal. Yeah, I think they'd pl- probably planned to have had some by now, wouldn't they? But <laughs> it's not really happened yet. Uh, but I mean, yeah, kind of old school PSG fans. They can always they can always point out like, well, our team in the nineties have won a European trophy. You, you guys haven't yet. Um, and yeah, it, it was in this season. So as yeah, as you said, the uh, Wea and Ginola are out. But I would maybe argue it's quite it's an arguable point. But I think Ginola might have be upgraded with Jokaev uh, coming in. But you know, kind of similar players. Jokaev tend to play a bit more centrally. But local, yeah, I would, I would argue that. In, in terms of a, a goal contribution, Yuri yeah. Jorkaev certainly is a is an upgrade in David Ginola. I, I think in terms of flair and excitement, I, I think Ginola would possibly win that that yeah. battle. Uh, That's fair. And uh, if we're if we're comparing like for like in terms of career, I think that the fact that the Ginola had his his issues with the coaching side of the the French national side. That uh, that perhaps held back his legacy somewhat in comparison to Jokaev. Yeah, because I mean, well, the story is uh, for the qualifying for the '94 World Cup, France won drawn with Bulgaria, one each, and um, all they had to do was draw. And uh, Ginola, uh, so I think uh, who was the manager at the time was it um, the Liverpool guy, Julia? It was Julia that was manager at the time. I think he, you know, he's basically instructed just to run it in the corner flag. But I think Ginola tried a cross or a shot or something. And then Bulgaria go up the field and score. And obviously Bulgaria went on and have a really good tournament. I think they got to the semis. And yet another mention of USA '94. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, Jockey. Which is ironic much. because it wasn't actually that good in a football sense. <laughs> I know. I just love talking about it. I. <laughs> I. <laughs> but uh, I so um, yeah, Jockey had a much better career for France. He got 28 goals in 82 games for France. Jockey and uh, he, you know he went on to play for. Well, and are probably a bigger team than anyone Ginola played for at the time, anyway. But yeah, Jokiev was he. I remember him best for his time, and he scored. I remember him scoring this bicycle kick against Roma. I think it was in his first season. His first season there, he was he was really like kind of top top drawer. Um, when he, funny thing is though, when when they brought in Ronaldo, and Jokiev did kind of suffer a bit. Um, it was it was it was still good, but then and obviously Ronaldo had his injuries, so he got his playing time. But um, he's he did definitely go on to be a bit of a cult hero at Bolton as well, didn't he? I certainly did, and even I can always remember the, the story that uh, mate's mum was a a football referee, uh, and she, she would manage kind of she would manage she would referee school games and various youth football matches. But that uh, set up in the Scottish Referees Association, they would meet a couple of times a week and she was quite friendly with the majority of the referees, including Hugh Dallas. And Hugh Dallas went over and refereed Kaiserslautern UEFA Cup game. Uh-huh. And they brought back Yuri Jorkaev's strip. And my mate had Yuri Jorkaev's Kaiserslautern strip. Oh, and he always nice. had a soft spot for Kaiserslautern because... He used to play with them on Charm Manager. <laughs> Class, eh? Yeah, that, I think uh, a lot of folk have a soft spot for Kaiser Slayton as well, actually. Yeah, they were, they were kind of uh, a bit of an underdog story in the, the mid to late 90s in, in German football, weren't they? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, things have kind of fizzled out for them somewhat now. But yeah, that, Stay- that was just a kind of... Stay tuned for our Kaiserslautern episode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe a bit further down the line that one. But, uh, <laughs> we might need a guest for that one, I think. Yeah, yeah I might try and source the, the Jorkaev strip and, and wear it to host it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that's a, a complete side note on the uh, on the signing of uh, Jorkaev. Can you tell us a bit about the, the road to, to winning the Cup Winners' Cup and the final victory over Rapid Vienna? Aye, definitely, and so I mean, to get to the cup winners' cup final, they, they got past, they got past Celtic. Well, it was a pretty good Celtic team because that was um, the one with Van Hoydonk and Cadetti, I think, was it? So they they got past them. Um, they also they got past a really strong Parma team. Like Parma in the mid nineties were a really top team. Ancelotti was managing them. They had Stoichkov, Zola, uh, Cannavaro, Dino Baggio. Um, and also um, John Toshak's Deportivo, they were going through they were going through their own kind of um, golden age at this time. 
Um, so they've got a really, yeah, it was a really kind of strong path to the final that PSG got through. Um, and so with, you know, with the Cup Winners' Cup final, I thought of being as the kind of showpiece event of this era. This is the day I've chose to get my pop culture from, from this week, Andy. So, <laughs> um, so the 8th of May, that was the Cup Winners, the 96th, the Cup Winners' Cup final. UK number one was Move, 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 The Red Tribe. Do you remember that song? I don't, know. That was that was Man United's FA Cup song <laughs> for, for that season. And oh. I don't I so I don't want to go too much into it because I think we're gonna do a man new episode quite soon. But um yeah, I, it was it was a, a kind of really kind of cheesy techno song sung by like the Man United players. But one thing I kind of remember from it was um so I've got cousins who like uh, like in, in Guernsey and um one of them is a Man United fan and I was over in Guernsey in the summer in 96 from our school, for, for my summer holidays and um, he just always played that song in the car <laughs> so it's, it's, that's kind of ingrained in my brain move and move the red tribe and um, the number one film was The Birdcage which I've I, don't, I mean I could heard the name but I never really heard of said a gay cabaret owner and his drag queen companion agreed to put up a false straight front so that their son can introduce him to his fiance's right wing moralistic parents so, yeah, the birdcage. <laughs> but back to the football. Um, yeah, I watched... Hold on, I, watched... I, need, I need more. I need more. Who was well, the number one album at the time? Because I'm not finishing with a Man United song. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to, mm. to divide the listenership at this very early stage. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I, I don't know if that... Because I think I tried to get the album for the, like, the last episode of the Champions League episode, but I couldn't find it. So I, I didn't kind of bother with this one. Maybe we can try to do some research on the fly. But uh, I did actually, I, I did check to see what Reg Holt was up to this week, though. Because um, it took over the, cor- the corner shop in the 93 episode, you know, the Champions League. But unfortunately, this week in 1996, Reg and Marine would um, file for divorce a week after the final. So uh, better times ahead for Reg, hopefully. Um, so, I, I think I, I'm just looking at the the significant albums that were released. Uh, say that Space Girls Spice would be right up there in terms mm-hmm. of sales, I would imagine. Uh, I think, I reasonable, think, reasonable Doubt by Jay Z. Oh, I think that was his first album, wasn't it? I, I think I mean, reading that was like his first album because, yeah, I think we're like, I think we're basically like weeks before the Spice Girls kind of exploded at this time. So we're very, we're, we're, we're very close to it. They were warming up. They were on the sidelines. As uh, <laughs> obviously watching on with keen interest as Rapid Vienna were dispatched in the, the <laughs> Cup final. Brilliant, brilliant segue there. Uh, so um, yeah, watching watching the highlights of this PSG basically they batter Rapid Vienna for the whole game. Even though Rai comes off injured in the first half, I think he's replaced by um, Deli Valdez. But um, yeah, they, they absolutely batter them. They take the leads. Bruno and Gotti scores in the 29th minute. I think it's like a low deflected free kick. But after that, they just miss so many chances. Like Jokiev is amazing in this game. Jokiev just tears rapid being apart. Uh, but they just the finishing, ah, uh, the finishing is, is awful. And uh, and like from like the 86th minute onwards, like rapid being get a few, you know, they get a few pretty good chances. It must have been like really nervy times for PSG uh, for PSG's fans at that time. But they do hold out. And um, it's a really nice moment, like at the like at the kind of full full time whistle, Luis Fernandez, and manager, he just kind of breaks down, sinks to his knees, and he's got like his two boys with him as well, and he's just like totally overcome uh, by it all. So it's a really nice kind of human human moment to round it off. So on the back of the the triumph in the Cup Winners Cup, the following season would be underwhelming. That's what I would possibly describe it as. On the back of, of such great success and that incredible sea of emotion and winning the Cup Winners' Cup, the next season, again, and this has been a, a chain of looking back in these seasons, a success is very rarely backed up with one that's anywhere near on a par with it. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like they were really building a dynasty here, is it? Not like they're building like an era of dominance like they have done now, obviously, but... Maybe because we're talking about Luis Fernandez breaking down, maybe that's because he knew it was his last game or something. Because the Ricardo, the ex player, he he takes over from Fernandez uh, this season. Uh, they do still finish setting, but the form's a lot more patchy. Like they, I think they finish by twelve points or something like that. But um, 
it should it should be said it's a, it's Monaco that win the league and it's a pretty special emerging Monaco team because you know Jean Tegan as a manager they've got Henri Trezeguet Petit obviously John Collins as well um, PSG they do get to another cup winners cup final but uh, in their way is Bobby Robson Ronaldo and the translator Jose Mourinho um, and yeah they can they can't get past them I think it's a one to one for Barca Ronaldo scores. And that would be one of his last games for Barca as well, funnily enough. Um, this is back as well when they played the Super Cup in like January, February. So they had um, PSG. They, you know, they were the Cup Winners Cup winners. Juve were the Champions League winners. They were playing each other in like January, February. Juve battered them. Juve beat them 6-1 in Paris and 3-1 in um, Turin. Actually, no, not Turin. Juve played the home leg in Palermo because... Um, Basically, because they, they, they never like had anyone to fill the Deli Alpe because everyone hated the Deli Alpe. No one liked going there. They thought, if we'll take it to Palermo, we'll, we'll get a packed crowd and you know intimidate them more. I don't think really, I don't think it was really necessary taking a six-one lead, but um, that's what they did. Um, but yeah, I I think you're right. It was a bit of an underwhelming season. There was a memorable night uh, against Liverpool, though they beat Liverpool three 0 and um, the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final. They lose 2-0 at Anfield, but, you know, aggregate takes them through. In terms of the, the Cup Winners' Cup, again, the team would reach the final of the competition, and this time, though, it didn't have that happy ending. Nah, unfortunately not, as uh, as we said. But I think that Barca team was just a bit too strong, like I mentioned Ronaldo, but they also had Figo at this time as well. Um yeah, trying try to think who else, just off the top of my head, Luis Enrique, Nadal, um, Guillermo Amor, one of my kind of cult heroes. Um, just a, a, a very strong team um, that PSG couldn't quite get past. And then uh, after that, we've got the 97-98 season. It's another domestic double, so that's you know very very good, but league form kind of falls off a cliff, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it certainly did. And I, I, don't, I don't really know background to how much esteem these domestic trophies are held in, in France. I know, I know certainly if you come at it from a, a Scottish point of view or an English point of view, I would say that these trophies mean a lot more to the, the so-called smaller clubs or mm-hmm. the smaller clubs, if you will, um, than they do the likes of your, your Manchester United's and Manchester City's and Liverpool's in England and like to Rangers and Celtic in Scotland. I would imagine it's pretty similar when it comes to the French Cup with and your Marseilles and your PSGs. Yeah, and I think it's generally thought of in Europe. They don't take even the big cup. Like so they've got, you know, they've got two cup competitions in France, or well, they did then anyway. But um I I I, I think even any team they, they don't they don't put as much stock in that as we do the Scottish Cup or the English do in the FA Cup. Even though I know that's that's fading a bit in Britain now as well, but um, you know, in the nineties, I think it was still seen as a really big deal. But I think all the time in Europe, it's never been that big a deal, really. But I, I mean, they finished eighth. Um, they finished eighth in the league, but they were really, really unlucky in the Champions League. So I'd forgotten about this this season. The Champions League, it had like um, PSG. They were in a group with Bayern. They finished level on points with Bayern. They both finished on twelve points, and then. Of all the teams that finish second in each group are ranked into like an, their own mini table. And the top two teams from that table, you know, proceed on to the knockout stage. So Bayer Leverkusen finished on 13 points. They were the best placed second place team. And then there was UV and PSG on 12 points. UV had a goal difference of plus four. PSG had a goal difference of plus one. So there were only three goals you know, away from getting in the knockouts. And even then, they finished joint top with Bayern, really. They were, um, uh, yeah, joint top. Bayern had a six-better goal difference than them. But really unlucky here. Uh, and that U of A team, you know, that just put them to it, they went on to the final. I think they lost to Real in the final. But I, that was a, a sore one for PSG, definitely. And um, that's seen as the, the end of the, you know, the first golden era for PSG in, in Europe and domestically. Yeah, it certainly did. And that's epitomised by the fact it would take until 2013 for PSG to claim the French title again. Mm -hmm. Now, despite that, there was a number of 
household names that, that graced PSG during that that spell. There's two obvious ones that spring to mind, mate. Paletta and Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho burst onto the scene in the 1999 Copa America. How did he come to to then join PSG? I so I mean PSG they ended they ended up signing him from Gremio in 2001. Uh, somewhere I read it was five million, then another place I read it was fifteen. So I'm not quite sure. I'm gonna assume it was fifteen because I can't even back then I can't imagine a Ronaldinho level talent going for five million. But I'm sure that I someone will be able to correct me um, in the future. But yeah, I remember. Um, I I, I kind of roughly remember that Copa America because. Um, we just got we just got like cable in our house. I didn't have Sky or anything. I didn't have Sky Sports or any of the sports channels, but um, we had CNN, and CNN had this like um, daily show called World Sport. It was on at like half seven or something in the morning on weekdays. So I used to watch that before school every day, and that you know you'd see stuff like this, you know, like sport from far away, far far away places. I remember seeing, like, I remember being like dead into baseball that season because <laughs> that was like the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run kind of thing. Um, but um, yeah, that that kind of time. But yeah, I remember seeing this guy Ronaldinho. I was like, no, no that's that's not his name. He's called Ronaldo. So what, what Ronaldinho? Uh, and he was kind of seen as the next Ronaldo at that point because he was, I, I kind of vaguely remember him being more of a striker and he had the shaved head as well, like Ronaldo, not, not what you think of Ronaldinho nowadays. But yeah, there was that Copa America and the um, Confederations Cup as well. I think he scored in all but one of the games in that Confederations Cup in 99. So he was really kind of uh, starting to burst on the scene there. Obviously, nowadays, the when you get a Brazilian wonder kid, the, the very, very, very top teams would just pounce right away. But back then, you know, PSG were kind of in that second tier, let's say, and uh, they, they managed to get him. What's interesting, though, Andy, did you know he nearly he was nearly at St Mirren? Yeah, I, I have, uh, <laughs> I've heard the kind of the old wife's tales about this, uh, but I, I didn't know that there was actually any kind of substance to this. Yeah, I mean, from what I could kind of dig up, um, so St. Mirren man, St. Mirren's manager, Tom Hendry, at the time, so basically, I think his contract was up with Gremio. No, no, what am I talking about? Um, he'd, signed, he'd signed for PSG already, but um, it was out, he, he was out of contract with Gremio, so there was like three months or something where PSG were quite keen for him to gain his fitness back and, you know, get him accustomed to European football. <laughs> European football, Love Street, you know? Um so they were quite they were quite uh, keen for him to sign for them just just for a few months and um, they'd offered Ronaldinho like a salary on a par with the kind of top earners at St Mirren you know nothing nothing outlandish they offered him that like his own car his own flat and he was fine with that Ronaldinho was was fine with that but what Tom Hensley reckons is so this is just a quote I'm reading from him so. What actually happened was Brazil were playing a game and the Brazilian FA had shut down. No, nobody works there. They were all watching a game of football and we just ran out of time. It just fell down to the fact that the Brazilian FA couldn't do it in time because of that match. It was too late and we ran out of time. The Scottish FA wouldn't accept the registration after March 31st. So what could have been, man? I mean, possibly the best uh, player to ever, ever played for St Mirren, you know, with all, all due respect to, like, I don't know, Campbell Money. Um, I think Ronaldinho would have been <laughs> maybe the best. Yeah, yeah I, I use the term old wife's tale. I, th- I think uh, urban myth would have been more <laughs> apt. But the, yeah, I, oh, that's, that's quite incredible. And obviously, there, there's stories about Bully Gunnar Solskjaer nearly signing for Motherwell. Ah, yeah. uh, but Alex McLeish not been too impressed by him. And he subsequently signed. John Henry from Tottenham for a, mm. a, a hugely inflated fee. Uh, he had scored in the, the North London derby for Spurs against Arsenal. Was this when... None of that Was Everton. Sorry, mate. Uh, I... Um... Yeah, was this? I uh, so I guess was, this was the kind of the period when all the Scottish teams thought they were going to be flush with Sky Money, and they, they, they never were. I. I think this was. This would have been around about the time where Motherwell sold Phil O'Donnell to Celtic. And right. until very recently, that was Motherwell's kind of record sale. And I think some of the money was invested in that transfer. I'm trying to think of 
it would have been 95, 96, or 94, 95, 95, 96, I reckon. Um, yeah, but that's a, that's another topic of conversation, I suppose, <laughs> the the mad money that was promised into Scottish yeah. football and then didn't... I think that'd be a good one. ...didn't end up coming to fruition, and while it caused major, major headaches for, for a number of clubs. But anyway, we're getting wildly <laughs> off topic here. Let's cover off some of the, the bullet points in the aftermath of of those glory years for Paris Saint-Germain. One thing that we've, we've perhaps overlooked, I know we've mentioned fleetingly the rivalry with Marseille, the troubles that, that Marseille had off the back of their own misdemeanours as well. First season that we've detailed on this podcast, there was no, there was no champion uh, <laughs> due to the fact that Marseille had been outed for their what appeared to be a form of match fixing in the the 92-93 season. So we went into the 93-94 season without a a league champion. That 93-94 season, they were subsequently relegated as well. So there was a a hell of a lot of fallout from that scandal. Now, a lot of kind of reading up was required for me. I I don't know about yourself, but Mm -hmm. I, I was of the impression that PSG were a bit of a tourist attraction if you will, in terms of they don't have the, the history that, that many of the the big names in French football mm-hmm. you would associate with. Like Marseille have, have got a, a great history and they're obviously former European Cup winners as well. And PSG were only found in, in 1970, so it takes a while to build up a fan base in that regard. And even now, I, I think that with names the likes of, of Kylian Mbappe, Lionel Messi, that attracts supporters. Maybe not the most loyal of supporters, but it attracts more eyes on your product. Yeah, uh, those, co- Sorry, go on, mate. Those supporting PSG are deciding to support PSG in 1970. I, I, I can't really fathom the, the rationale behind that, especially if they already supported a team prior to deciding to support PSG. Yeah, I think they they attract customers, don't they? Not not supporters. <laughs> with, with you know the likes of Mbappe and Messi, I think, and I think that's what they see them more as. Um yeah, as um when I was kind of looking looking at this looking at this, I was almost kind of looking at it in a way PSG Marseille is a bit like um Man U and Chelsea in the 2000s, as in the fact that um you know Man U, Marseille were the kind of dominant winning team and Chelsea, PSG were the kind of new kids on the block with the money and the rest of the fans hated them both. <laughs> like, they were both they were both kind of um, despised. Um, but it's it's quite it's quite in this uh, it's quite in this <laughs> can't say interesting for some reason. It's quite interesting the way like it kind of um Canal Plus the, the part they had to play in it because Canal Plus are they're like Sky or like a kind of cross between Sky and BBC you know they, they've got their own kind of programming they do sports but they don't have adverts so that's why I like BBC but so they you know they owned uh, PSG at this point and you talked about how um, my Marseille got stripped of their league on title and you know didn't go into next year's Champions League the 93-94 one but um you know, PSG came second that year, and you'd think, oh, why didn't PSG get in it? I think we kind of briefly touched on it the last episode, but the reason was was that well, Canal Plus owned PSG, but they had, you know, a lot of their customers were Marseille fans, and they basically didn't want to anger those customers further by, you know, PSG taking their place. And they kind of... They're 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 known to have kind of played their part in stoking the rivalry, you know, th- through the years here. Yeah, so like one of the best one of the best known matches from around this time um, was that previous season, the ninety two ninety three season. They call it they call it like the butchery of nineteen ninety two. It was a PSG Marseille game, December eighteenth, nineteen eighty two. Um, so like you know, Canal Plus were playing their part and kind of hyping this up. Um, Arthur George, he was you know the PSG manager at the time. He said they were going to crush Marseille and David Ginola. He'd like promised war upon them and stuff like that. And um, 
But to, to, so to motivate to motivate the players, uh, Bernard Tappy, the Marseille president we talked about in the last episode, he'd like stick the newspaper articles on the in the dressing rooms and stuff like that of PSG provoking them. And yeah, Marseille ended up winning one 0 but there was more than fifty fouls in that game, so that's why it's called known as the the butchery of ninety two. And uh, there was a game in the eighties as well, like eighty nine. There was a really kind of big deal. I think they were both like very, both kind of neck and neck for the title. I think like the fourth last game of the season or something. Um, Marseille won. Uh, Mar- you know, Marseille won one nil or two one or something, and that kind of um, saw them home from there. But that that was a that was a kind of really important game in their rivalry as well. That's uh, that's all I've got on <laughs> the rivalry really with Marseille. Exactly. Allowed for more challengers, though, hasn't it? In, in terms of you, you've got the likes of Leon and, and Monaco sampling some success, perhaps due to the the lack of capitalising on mm-hmm. a the the demise of Marseille and b PSG's own new financial impetus that they had. And financial backing that they had to to blow other teams out of the water during this golden era, there was plenty of other teams that will possibly look back on it as their golden era as well, which is it's quite a, a strange thing because you you normally would interpret it that aside having those incredible players amongst the ranks, the the backing of a a multi multi million pounds empire. That would mean that they were all conquering, and there was mm-hmm. everyone else was simply swept aside. But that was far from the case. No, because I mean, Ozer won the league, I think, in '95. Uh, Nantes won it uh, a year or two before that as well. So, as you said, a lot of the teams got their got their own kind of share. And you know, if we were having this conversation 10, 15 years ago, like Lyon were by far like they, they were pretty much Bayern Munich, <laughs> you know, in France at that time. They were just winning the league, you know, I don't know, seven years in a row or something like that. They had uh yeah, I, they they had that total monopoly on the league. Um it was only I mean, it wasn't only PSG's Qatar money that started to change the time, the the tide. You know, obviously Monaco have had quite a few strong years. Obviously, that team a few years ago with Mbappe, Bernardo Silva, um, well, who else? Mendy. Um, who was that? Um, Condogbia. Like, uh, yeah, it was kind of just absolutely stacked with talent. They managed to they managed to dis, um, dethrone them. And they did again a couple of years ago. Before we had Mont Montpellier, Mont- Mont- <laughs> can't even say it, Montpellier, um, in 2012, 2013, something like that. But for the for the most part, it has been uh, the PSG, the PSG show. But yeah, I just wanted to talk a wee bit about uh, ultras as well, if you don't mind, uh, the ultras in the ni- in the kind of nineties and what's happened to them now. Yeah, of course. I, um, what I'll do is just before you do that, like, so in, in terms of from PSG winning the league in 1994, following season, Nantes won it. Put on that, Auxerre. The next season, it was Monaco. Season after that, it was Lens, and then Bordeaux, followed by another season for Monaco and another season for Nantes. So that just shows how fluid the situation was in terms of there was constant change at the top, albeit followed by seven years in a row. Um, <laughs> Of domestic glory for Leon, but it certainly was. Uh, it wasn't easy to call, and in many of those seasons, you look at the top three, and PSG aren't always a a fixture on that. Uh, so it's very telling that a lot of teams were enjoying themselves in France and really were staking a claim. It's just a wee bit kind of, and I'm sure we'll touch on it in our final point of the, the podcast. But it is a bit of a shame to see. Some of those names that were, yeah, quite prolific and associated with success have fallen away in the years that have followed. I mean, I generally that's a sign of a healthy league, isn't it? When you get a you know a different winner every every year or every few years. That's why I'm enjoying set. Well, one of the reasons I'm enjoying Serie A so much now for a different uh, winner in the last uh, three years or so since you've started to slide. No, absolutely. It's, it, it tends to a, a competitive league at and entertainment tend to go hand in hand and that doesn't necessarily mean that the games are absolutely fantastic it, it just means that there are 
there's so much more riding in each and every game. Yeah. And that subsequently adds to the to the value of the product. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree. So so give us a wee bit of background as to the the rise of the ultras over the course of the nineties and then a bit of a, a fall as we as we got to around about two thousand and ten and, and beyond. I so the the PSG first PSG ultras that I that I kind of knew about. So there's the Bull On Boys, um, the Bull On Boys. So they came soon after the creation of PSG. So PSG kind of offered at this time, you know, back in the seventies. I don't do they mention actually PSG are like a day older than Alan Shearer. <laughs> I don't mention that yet, but that's a kind of fun PSG fact. But um, aye. So PSG, they offered like kind of cheap tickets to like the Belong stand, that's what it was called, and it became known as like the Cop of Belong, and then they officially formed the Belong Boys in 85, known as like the kind of first ultras group. Um, so they were, the, they were the kind of the only fans there, uh, not the only fans, the only kind of ultras group there for a good few years. But due to their behaviour um, towards the 90s, you know, towards the golden age, as, as we've covered, the attendance was starting to plummet just because of their behaviour, basically, the behaviour of the Bullen boys. So Canal Plus in charge, they kind of um, backed uh, and financed in some part the creation of uh, the Otay. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled A-U-T-E-U-I-L. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Otay. Um, so um, at this point, that stand, the Otay stand, he'd been mainly composed of like kind of casual spectators. Um, but this kind of group of fans were a bit more welcoming into that, a bit more welcoming to away fans as well, not as kind of intimidating as the Bullon boys. And as I said, encouraging finance by the clubs. So as they grew, what you really had in the 90s was you've got like the cop at Liverpool and, and the part of the trance they kind of almost had two cops that, you know, both goals at both ends of the pitch. And these fans were kind of like rivaling each other. They were like, they were, you know, doing chants, call and response to each other across the pitch. And it was basically creating like one of the best atmospheres in Europe due to these two kind of rivaling stands. And, you know, I, I kind of roast into you with thinking, oh man, this is amazing. Uh, so part of it was like that, but uh, as we get, you know, the 2000s and, you know, uh, it, it did get kind of steadily more violent. Um, so that's when that's when they they kind of announced this thing called like, Plon Le Preau. So like Robin Le Preau was the PSG president at this time. And his plan is just basically to wipe these guys out completely. Not kill them, but um, basically these two stands were closed. Um, so there's... Both like the kind of the both the kind of north and south stands, whatever they were just they were just closed. No fans over there at all. There was no atmosphere at all. So this is a this is like 2010. Then QSI Qatar they come in a couple of years later. They look at it. They look at it. They don't really want to see empty stands, but um, they don't want the bull on boys or the Otay back. So they reopened those stands, but they raised ticket prices by like 70%. <laughs> so what you've got now is kind of like your socialite Parisians. As we were kind of talking about before, you're more kind of fair weather fans, casual fans, like, you know, tourists and that, customers, as I'd call them. They're basically, they're, they're at the game because they can afford it and the ultras can't. <laughs> so well, uh, while the stadium's full, the, the atmosphere that was once like the kind of envy of teams all over Europe in the 90s is absolutely not there anymore. But, it, you know, it's a bit, the, I remember in this kind of period, the, it's, the PSG atmosphere became a bit of a, a, a joke, really. Um, and so we're at the kind of mid-2010s now. And the, the ultras would still go. So the Bullon boys and the Otay, they would still go like and, you know, stand outside singing songs. Not the same, but they still go outside. And what they did, it was quite cool. They started going to the women's games and really giving, like, really giving them a good, a good support. Uh, I can't, I don't know what it was like. Some other stadium they played at, but they created this amazing atmosphere for for the women's games. Well, because you know they weren't basically allowed into the men's games, so they've been priced out of it. Um, but then you had guys like so the PSG fans they really love like Blaise Matuidi and Thiago Silva because. They kind of took a stand to say, like, we, you know, we we want these guys back. Basically, uh, they you know they didn't have to do that. They they were getting they'd get paid. You know, they'd play for a great team either way. Um, but they took a stand and they want these guys back. So, and um, I think it's like 2016. The two of them 
as far as I know, I, I might be wrong on this, but the two of them kind of joined forces, the Ote and the Boulogne boys. And so they formed the Collectif Ultras Paris, or the CUP. So they start with only like 150 fans being allowed back in. And then it's eventually grown down to about like two and a half thousand. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what that's kind of what we're at now. It's not it's not perfect, but they're they're, they're being allowed back, and hopefully, you know, you know, violence will be kept to a minimum. But I mean, I think it's just important to to think, you know, if if the Qatar money ever does like disappear, it doesn't look likely at this point. But you know, if you're if you're like Messi's and Neymar's go away, like th- those customers will be gone, but those guys will still be here. You know, the 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 real fans. So it's I think it's just important uh, not to forget that. No, that's it. Maybe it sounds like I was taking a bit of a side swipe at their history, but uh, you do look at the likes of Marseille, founded in 1899. They've got a 71-year head start on mm-hmm. PSG when it comes to, to building a fan base, so it, it stands to reason that they would be a more wider-supported side, whether that's now the case worldwide. It's perhaps a bit up for debate because you only have to go to any city centre across the UK or, or beyond and you'll see a host of foreign football mm. shirts and, and PSG are, I'm sure, one of the, the top sellers because they have got names like Neymar and Mbappe and Messi. The Jordan stuff as well, you know. Aye. So the Jordan stuff as well, you know, like uh, that's kind of like tied in, like the you know the Nike Jordan stuff. Um, yeah, of course. What's I was funny was I went to um, for my work last year. I was going around all the like kind of sports shops in Glasgow, trying to get one of each shirt from from the Euros. It's like competition we're doing to like win them, and so I was going around the shirts like shirt shopping, and like by far the most popular shirt I saw was PSG. Um, it's bit, I mean, they had a lot of kind of special product placement, I'm sure, in the night shop. But yeah, everywhere I went, PSG, PSG, more than Real, Barca, Man U, Milan, Chelsea, like whatever. Um, so they've definitely, they've definitely made a big, um, a big impression in Europe now. Um, of customers, as I say, not, not, not maybe not fans, but um, there definitely are. Yeah, there definitely are proper PSG fans out there. I don't, uh, I don't want to sell them short. It's definitely not a fan base full of customers because there's definitely a very kind of um, strong and vocal uh, part of this fan base that I think almost kind of resents what PSG have become, um, despite you know the, all the domestic success they've had now, because I think they feel like they've maybe lost a part of their club. And just finally, we've started the podcast by discussing the fact that this behemoth that it's become has yet to to lift the, the major title in European football. They've not won the Champions League. Of course, in 2020, they, they reached the final where they would lose out to Bayern Munich. Mm-hmm. But to date, that's the closest they've, they've come to, to winning it. Of course, they'll again have major aspirations to win it this season, along with every other team that's in the, the competition. Yeah. Do you see that being something that's in the the very near future, will they just spend their way to to ensuring it happens? You look at the likes of Manchester City, who have transformed the club from what it was around about the time that we're talking about PSG in. Like they were a League Two side in, in England, or a League One side, a Division Two side uh, in England, gained promotion through a playoff final. It was only in the what 2008, 2009, the mm. the money started coming in, and now that they are regularly English champions and a very successful side, but they've not taken that one step beyond and won the the Champions League. Is there a danger that you can just throw money at it and not achieve the the success that you aspire to, or is it just a a matter of time before that investment? pays off and, and PSG are European champions. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think um and like yeah, there's a very kind of clear mirror image with City, isn't there? Um of like so much domestic success and still not done it in Europe. They both got to one final, I think, each haven't they? Yeah, Man City um Man City played Chelsea and PSG played Bayern, didn't they? But 
I mean, you would think it's got to happen sooner or later for them in Europe, but the thing is, there's, I mean, there's two things. There's, there's so much. There's so much competition. There's there's teams that um, spend nearly as much as PSG, and there's just there is a kind of lottery aspect to the cup competition when you look at the way Real won it last season. When you know, obviously PSG, that was one of the teams they got past somehow. <laughs> it was just the. The PSG have had a recent history of kind of falling apart at this stage. Um, but when you look at their team on paper, you think this is this has got to kind of click sooner or later. But I think we do see the same near enough every kind of September-ish for PSG. We're like, oh man, this year, surely. And then when it comes to February, they'll collapse somehow. <laughs> and um, you know, the fans will be the fans will be booing Neymar and Messi again, like they did uh, this past February, I think. I remember watching that game live, it was quite surreal. They just got knocked out by PSG and they were at home, I think, to Bordeaux. And um, yeah, Neymar and, and Messi were getting booed by every touch. <laughs> it was like I it, it was it was quite quite funny to be honest, but um it's hard to yeah, I don't know. Do you think they'll win it in the next like five years or so? I would, I would say that I now, I now regard them as one of the favourites going into it. I, I think that mm-hmm. maybe that's just a, a very obvious comment, but mm-hmm. I'd say if you were to ask me two sides that I think are going to win it, but my answer would be for this season would be Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. So yeah. I, I think that it's more likely to happen than it is not to happen if, if you give it a five-year run, but there's there's a lot of moving parts and even the, the dismissal of Mitchell Pochettino, who you if you looked back on it and you were to tell a Paris Saint Germain fan in, in nineteen ninety-five that the team in, in twenty twenty-two would romp the league, there would be a, a real force to be reckoned with in Europe. But the manager would be sacked in the back of that because it wasn't enough <laughs> success. They they would be quite bewildered by that. So it's it's uh, it just shows you the the rapid transformation in the club on the back of the eye water and money that's been invested. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth saying like um, even though like I've, I've yeah I've I've really I've really kind of enjoyed um, you know digging through PSG's history and 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 my research for this, but they have kind of um, with that Neymar transfer they have. Kind of ruined football, haven't they? With the uh, what was it, two hundred twenty-two million? They've broken the transfer market forever. After that, after that, now you get guys like Aaron Wan-Bissaka going for fifty million because of that transfer. Um, so just to leave a, a just to leave things on a bit of a more bitter note, <laughs> even though I do respect what PSG did in the nineties. Yeah, it certainly moves like that. I've. Uh... I've kind of taken it away from the, the beautiful game, which is the premise of this podcast was built on. So yeah, a good a good wee reference point there, Greg. I do appreciate that. And I do appreciate <laughs> your time tonight. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been very interesting. Me too, mate. Enjoyed it too. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.